Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Brown, Bad, and Bothered. I'm your host, Andrea. And if this is your first time tuning in, oh my God, you are in for a ride. I am so excited for today's guest. But if you are a returning listener, make sure stop, drop, roll, rate, review, and subscribe. It literally takes three seconds. One, two, three, chef's kiss. All right, we are back with another banging guest episode. I hope you have cleaned your ears because you should be ready to really soak in this chat that's coming in because I have Nancy with us today. Nancy is a trauma-informed therapist whose niche is actually woman of color. So come on, can the pairing get any perfect right now? Um, But I'm going to hand over to Nancy. I would love for you to introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, yes, thanks. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I'm so happy to be here. Yes, my name is Nancy Diaz, and as you mentioned, yeah, I'm a trauma-informed therapist for women of color who are daughters of immigrants, actually. And I'm in Australia at the moment, but I'm also a nomadic therapist, which means that I travel and I move around and I'm always uh, learning from different cultures. And my clients are all over the world as well from different cultural backgrounds. And yeah, that's how I like it. I just love learning from people. And yeah, I'm hoping that this will be a great chat and we can learn from each other. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. Super excited to have you on. Um, So your niche, as you mentioned, is women of color and you also are the woman of color. So what exactly is your background? Where did you grow up? Oh, yeah. So I am the daughter of immigrants. And so I grew up in the U.S. and my parents are from Mexico and I moved abroad three and a half years ago. But yeah, Mexican-American is, is my cultural identity. When we spoke earlier, I was telling you about like the trials and tribulations of being a South Asian brown daughter. And I'm sure that there are similar experiences when it comes to being Mexican and being brown in America. And what was your experience growing up? Yeah, I noticed that there are so many similarities. And I think when I was in the U.S., I didn't really notice the similarities. And I think that that's done on purpose, that they try to make it seem that we're all so different Mm -hmm. and that we have nothing in common and there's language barriers. And, but really there's so many similarities. And yeah, for me growing up, I think as a woman of color, I think my identity as a woman of color was very tied to being the daughter of immigrants in the U.S. Because yeah, I think that um, Mexican Americans are unfortunately very hated in the U.S. And Mm -hmm. so that was usually what would come up for me, like any experiences with racism or with microaggressions. It was usually, you know, comments about my immigrant parents or, you know, anything kind of related to that. So, yeah, it wasn't a a very pleasant experience. And now, you know, in my travels as well, it's different that now it's the, you know, casual racism. It's different. It's not necessarily no one knows here that that my parents are, are Mexican immigrants, but they see mm-hmm. me that I'm a person of color. And so, yeah, I think the experience changes as you kind of move around, even from different yeah. cities within the U.S., but then especially yeah. different countries. And I know yeah. that you probably experienced that as well. Yeah, around. definitely. Um, I feel like growing up in Southern Africa, if there was any tension, it was because brown people like Indians in Um, Southern Africa tend to be racist towards um, Black Africans, like from Black people being like, oh, like you guys mistreat us. So that was sort of the tension 
back home um and then like in terms of the government like feeling that indians like steal jobs and stuff but then when i moved to america especially it was trump era 2015 um 2016 2015 or 2016 elections you know that was it's your make america great racism that i had experienced and then when i moved to dubai it was totally different kind of racism in the sense that it was very targeted towards brown people and Filipino people where, you know, the local Arabs, the system itself had a power of hierarchy within different ethnicities, races, and even passports. And it was almost a very silent type of racism, which was just swept under the cover just because of the way uh, censorship and, you know, media policies and the government works in the UAE. So that was quite different. Everywhere we go, you see the different implications and impacts it has, you know. Yeah, it definitely has. It reaches so far. And yeah, like you said, like there's racism, you know, everywhere. But yeah, I think we have to acknowledge the impact that it can have on our mental health, especially. Mm -hmm. And now Mm -hmm. I'm glad that there's more research showing that, you know, things like microaggressions, even though it has the word micro in it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to have a micro impact and it's yeah. going to take a toll. And yeah. the more that we experience these microaggressions, now studies are showing that it can lead to racial trauma. And now I'm so glad that, you know, there's this term for what it is that we can experience, yes. which is racial trauma and is very common. And especially yes. with everything that's been happening with the Black Lives Matter movement, it's really important for us to kind of look at that and acknowledge when that's something that we may be experiencing. Because I've even had clients, you know, work here in Australia or in other countries who have never lived in the U.S. are not American, Mm -hmm. are not anywhere, you know, physically, remotely close to what's happening in the U.S. with those protests, but Mm -hmm. still they're very affected by it. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we have to acknowledge, like, all of that has an impact and it's it's worldwide. Sometimes it becomes overwhelming because like, you know, I always look at this whole um, racial trauma and mental health and just general people of color trauma that you experience, um, immigrant trauma. There's so many layers to it, so many microaggressions. And it, it seems like such minuscule layers, but it all adds up like an onion, right? And, you know, when you cut yeah. an onion, it's so strong, you can't help but tear up. And it's almost the same thing. Sometimes it's very hard when people don't have a direct connection to these layers. They just see it as maybe one or two layers and they don't understand that it's actually a hundred things happening at once that are so integrated with each other. Was your journey as a trauma-informed therapist, was that directly like inspired and motivated because of your experience? Yeah, it definitely was. And I think that that was the reason that I wanted to become a therapist in the first place was because my younger sister, she was 10, 10 years old at the time. And she was diagnosed with anxiety disorder. And it was really bad for her to the point that she couldn't go to school. She was missing so much school. All of these things were happening at home and we couldn't find her the support that she needed. We couldn't even um, get her anything because we couldn't find a bilingual um, therapist who was Mm -hmm. a person of color. I said, no, we definitely need someone who's bilingual because my mom you know, being Mexican immigrant, her English is is passable, but definitely not when it comes to things like mental health. Like, you know, in mm-hmm. our in our cultures, mental health is still, you know, there's still so much stigma surrounding it. Yeah. A lot of people don't really know what it is. They don't place a lot of importance in it. And so already it's something very new to her. And now she has this, you know, kid with a diagnosis and she's trying to navigate that. 
Mm-hmm. And so definitely I thought if, if we don't find a therapist who speaks Spanish, who's a woman of color, then yeah, it's just going to be difficult. And, that's, and yeah. then when we did move her to another school, then, you know, I just thought, well, now she's going to be in a school with, you know, primarily white students. They had just moved to a suburb that was very white. I grew up in a suburb where there was mostly kids that looked like me, other Mexican American mm-hmm. kids. But then they moved to a nicer suburb that was safer. But then, of course, that has different impacts and that can have different impacts on your mental health. If all of a sudden you're the only brown kid in your class. And so I just thought it's so important for her to have a therapist of color, even if Mm -hmm. it's not someone that's bilingual, but especially because she's so young and, you know, and the professional needs to be able to communicate with my mom what's happening. And so, yeah. And I just thought, wow, I can't believe that it took us eight months, eight long months to find someone. In, in Phoenix, in Arizona, where there's such a large Hispanic population and the need is so great. And I just thought, okay, I, I need to do this. At that yeah. point, I had already gotten my master's degree. I just didn't know if I would actually, you know, start working as a therapist or not because I burned out. I was so burned out. And I was like, I don't know if I will ever go back to this. But then I mm-hmm. think pandemic happened. My sister was diagnosed. Everything just kind of like felt like so yeah so important at that time to to start doing this work and then when I started thinking about who it is that I wanted to work with I was like this is actually what feels right and it took me a little bit to get there at first I thought that you know like oh well it's going to be so hard for me to work with this population because you know oh so many things like I want there's still some cultural barriers also I'm sure you know even with this generation just to open up because I feel like I know a lot of um, people of color want to find therapists that are people of color because it's easier, You like, you know, things like explaining that there's a lot of emotional manipulation from parents, like explaining that to maybe a white therapist who's like, just say no to your parent. But you're like, even just enforcing simple boundaries yeah. can be really hard as children of color, right? Even as young adults. But then like yeah. also finding mm-hmm. a person of color therapist that's still like, are they going to judge me? Are they gonna listen to me and I think like it's only now that we're sort of getting rid of that internalized stigma also yeah yeah and it's so important I think to find someone who understands I think even the immigrant journey and the immigrant experience and I know like for me that was important and that's why I also was struggling you know and and I've been kind of finding my own way um, because yeah, I know when I was looking for my own therapist, I really struggled because then I was over here in Australia and I was like, okay, I need a new therapist and mm-hmm. I can't find anyone in Australia. That's a therapist of color and in the U S well, they can't see me. No one would touch me at all because I was overseas and oh, really? I just recorded a, an episode on my own podcast talking about the frustrations with borders and mental health and how there's these regulations that really stop especially people of color from finding therapists that are going to be a good fit for them because I had found quite a few in the U.S. and I said oh I'd love to work with you you know like other daughters of immigrants or other immigrants Mm. and I thought okay I think this person can really relate to my experience and can really help me Um, but because they can only see people who are in their state they they did not want to touch me at all and I was like oh man I considered getting my license in the U.S. for the longest time. And, you know, it's obviously a lot harder when you're not physically there to take the test, do everything, all the bureaucracy. But then I thought, if I do get licensed in 
Arizona, then that means that I can't help all of the other women of color, all of their daughters of immigrants who are outside the U.S. Yeah. You know, expats like myself, travelers like myself, or, you know, there's daughters of immigrants here in Australia as well. Who yeah. need me, who need my services, you know, in India and like everywhere. We're all over. And so yeah. I just thought, okay, you know what? Like, this is, this is why also, like, I, I need to make sure that I'm doing my part to decolonize mental health because right now it's just, it's, I'm sorry, but it's just a bunch of bullshit. There shouldn't be any barriers to that. I don't know if you've heard of the platform South Asian Therapists. They actually have a directory of all South Asian. Yeah. For those of you listening who are looking for a POC therapist, maybe specifically South Asian, I'll put the link in the description. You never know who needs yeah. who needs a little bit yeah. of information. No, um, I love that there's directories like this. Yeah, yeah. There's also inclusive therapist directory which is very like for BIPOC, um, there's therapy for black girls, there's Latinx therapists, there's um, Asian directories as well. I had heard of the South Asian therapist directory. So far with your experience as um, a therapist, have you seen any trends when it comes to trauma specifically to, uh, to women of color? Yes, I have seen quite a bit. I think I think the one thing that I see the most is that, you know, women of color, we tend to be really we want to be really strong we're we're taught to be really strong and to kind of hold everything for everyone and do everything for everyone and so we end up putting our own needs our own mental health we end up putting it last it goes to the back burner and that's why we end up really burned out and stressed and overwhelmed and we might end up with depression or anxiety and I think a lot of times I think in almost all of my clients I see that it's because they're just doing the most for everyone except Mm -hmm. for themselves. You know, I always get from clients as well, like, oh, I don't think I'll be able to make it next week to our session because, you know, I have to drive my cousin to the airport or, you know, like I have to pay for my niece's dress or, you know, and I think especially like people of color, we're so enmeshed with our families Mm -hmm. and we have big families. And so then there's even more that we want to do to help every one of our family members. Yeah, that's the thing that I see the most is that we try to be really strong and we try to say like, no, I can handle it. Like, you know, my, I always saw my mom, you know, doing the most, cooking, cleaning, taking care of everyone. And if she did it, I can do it. And I think, you know, those of us who are thinking, I can't do this, I'm going to break that cycle. I'm going to do things differently. I'm, you know, going to make my partner cook. I'm going to make my partner wash the dishes. Like I'm going to get into the gender norms. I'm going to ask for help. I'm going to ask for, you know, extensions uh, at work or, you know, with assignments at, at school or whatever it is, like anytime that we make those small little decisions to set boundaries Mm -hmm. I I get so excited and I make sure to celebrate with my clients anytime it's the smallest thing you know anytime that I have someone say like I asked for an extension on this assignment because I have so much going on like that's amazing I think I went through six years of I don't think I ever ever asked for a deadline extension and that's that's horrible and actually there's studies now that show that women of color ask less deadline extension I've been like a higher tertiary student for like so many years now I've never asked for an extention and I'm like wait a minute 
<laughs> I totally and our white could counterparts have. are asking for it yeah. way more than we are. And when <laughs> I found out that, I was like, wait, they're asking for them and I'm over here killing myself and they're asking for them? I had no idea. Oh my God. But yeah, a lot of, you know, a lot of what you're mentioning does, you know, comes down to like boundaries, different, different forms of boundaries, financial boundaries, physical space, emotional um, and it takes a huge toll on us. And then I think there's also like so much internalized societal stereotyping of what's expected from women, right? So like for South Asian women, uh, and I'm not saying this doesn't exist for other women of color, but like specifically, like um, we're told that we have to take pain, like being a woman is painful and you just have to absorb that pain. And that's your duty as a woman, like, you know, the pain of maybe your husband neglecting you or the pain of like running a household alone and taking care of the kids. And it's like always having to be strong in that way and that it's your duty yeah. and it shouldn't be questioned. And then you also have the stereotypes for like Latino women where it's like they have to be strong, fierce. And they're always, you know, I guess when they're like put in positions where their emotions could be hurt or in a moment of conflict, they can't show weakness because they're like almost like always stereotyped, especially on media as this like fierce, sassy being. Right. And I'm sure it takes a toll on women where they feel like they can't show their vulnerability. And it's the same for like, um, you know, black women. I see that quite often. I think especially for those of us who have professions where we're helpers and then mm -hmm. there's even more of that pressure to always be giving back, always just be, you know, thinking about how can I, you know, help this person or this company or always, always thinking about everyone except for ourselves. And, you know, and I have some clients who also are doing amazing work. They're activists or whatever field that they're in, but they're, they're doing amazing things for people of color, you know, and, and yeah. diversity and inclusion spaces and all of these things, um, filmmaking, like they're just doing amazing things. But and that, then there's that added pressure of like, well, if I don't do this, then, you know, all, all these other people are going to suffer. Like my yeah. community, my culture, like they're going to suffer because I'm trying to do something really amazing. And it's a lot of hard work and, you know, it's sleepless nights and all of this. But, you know, I always say, like, if you can't um, put your mental health first, then you're just not going to have yeah. anything left to give anyone else. So yeah. unfortunately, you do have to try to make that time, make that yeah. space try to heal as you're doing all of these other yeah. things yeah yeah and to add on to that I think you have that added layer of the toxic side of hustle culture coming out where like there's this added pressure mm -hmm. to always have it together to always have like side hustles going on to like constantly be working right and as women of color it's even higher to climb that ladder so we feel that pressure to constantly overperform just to maybe reach the same level that like a white woman or white male is at right um, you know, for these women who are overworking, who are overstressing and overthinking, what is the first, what would you say is the first step for them? I think that the first step is just figuring out even what little things you can do to prioritize your mental health. So what little things you can do for soul care. I call it soul care because I think self-care has become so commercialized and mm -hmm. it's just absolutely ridiculous that now I think that when we think of self-care, we think of like very temporary solutions. So we might think mm -hmm. of like, oh, I should go and get in a bubble bath. But that's really just yeah. such a temporary fix that's not really addressing the root cause of the problem. And mm -hmm. so looking at like 
what can I actually do that's going to nourish my mind and my body so that it's actually sustainable. It's something that brings me joy. It's something that makes me feel less stressed. Like, you know, really having, even taking half an hour and just journaling and analyzing what you're doing right now for self-care is going to be so helpful. And that's what I'm going to be doing uh, tomorrow. Actually, I'm having a workshop called uh, Soul Care versus Self Care. And it's Ooh. going to be recorded. So, yes, so you can still join. I know this episode will come out after. But yeah, it's going to be really exciting. So we're going to be doing exactly that. Just having that time. I'm going to be giving everyone journal prompts to kind of help you figure it out what's working for you, what's not. And so if we think of it as you know, actual coping skills. Like, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of times we end up like binge eating, binge drinking, binge scrolling, social media. <laughs> We're doing all of these things that we consider self-care because it's not work, right? Um, yeah. And that's the other thing that it feels like it's just kind of all or nothing. Like, okay, we're either working or we're not working. And if we're not working, then it must be self. But oh then my God. we end up- Yeah, and this is, you know, <laughs> this is something I almost catch myself with where- I'm like always on the move, whether it's work or like my passion projects or what is studying or whatever it is that like when I do have a moment to rest and especially like when it's holidays and after I graduated two months off, where I didn't need to do anything like my body was itching. I was like, I can't handle resting. Like I was asking my boyfriend, I'm like, do you think I'm lazy? Do you think I'm unproductive? Am I messing up? Am I not like doing enough? And I'm like, dude chill you've been like killing it for three years and you finally have like two months off to like recuperate and rejuvenate and it's uncomfortable yeah. and I had to like train myself to be like to train. It's okay. that's exactly it and I think women of color because we have to work a lot harder than our white counterparts to smash that glass ceiling to do all of these things we always yeah. Are going to struggle with that thought of like if I'm not doing something then I'm mm-hmm. not productive then I'm lazy mm-hmm. so yeah super important yeah really look at your coping skills and how you're yeah. practicing yeah yeah definitely and in terms of like being um immigrants and children of immigrants do you see any like specific generational trauma like whether it's financial or you know are the types of traumas that you see prevalent specifically in um, immigrant woman? Yeah, definitely. And there is a bit of overlap, um, I think, with, you know, immigrant women and, and daughters of immigrants, adult daughters of immigrants. But the four types of traumas that I see the most uh, common are the ones that you mentioned, uh, generational trauma, um, but historical trauma as well, and racial trauma and uh, childhood trauma. Those are the ones that I see quite often. And I think especially, you know, daughters of immigrants, we have to acknowledge that there is definitely that generational trauma, because if we think of immigration as being a trauma, right, because it's moving your whole life Mm -hmm. to another country, starting over somewhere else, no matter how smooth the process is, it's something that's a big life transition. So if we think of that as a trauma, and we think of we are now you know, the adult children of our immigrant parents and that Mm -hmm. trauma has been passed on to us, you know, whether our parents wanted to pass that on to us or not, whether they know that they've passed that on to us or not. Unfortunately, our bodies score always and holding on to that that trauma, to that burden. And so often as daughters of immigrants, you know, there will be some of that childhood trauma as, you know, our parents are learning to navigate life 
in a new country and especially yeah. if there's you know moving around more than once to different cities or to different countries then there's even more of those life transitions and yes you know our parents are doing the best that they can and I guess like what I'm asking is if the way I'm going to explain it now also makes sense because in my mind I looked at it like for example like how my grandparents were maybe like treated growing up because of societal like trauma societal norms and then um, that affected them and then they raised my parents in with that same cycle of like pressure and achievement anxiety and negative criticism and all those things and you know my parents knew it was wrong but they thought it's normal and this is how you raise a child and like that cycle just keeps going and like traumatizing each generation is that also like generational trauma Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, I think the way that you explained it pretty much summarized it. I just, I'm a, a somatic therapist. And so I also like believe that it's stored in the body. And so mm-hmm. that's why we can feel yeah. um, a lot of times the stress from our parents and we can kind yes. of feel that in our body and it presents in different ways and back pain. So it's not always that we are stressed, you know, when our parents tell us that they you know, are struggling with their own relationship with the, with their parents or whatever it is. So sometimes mm-hmm. it is kind of stored in our body as well. And we mm-hmm. kind of carry mm-hmm. that burden. It makes a lot of sense because like I've read a lot of um studies like, you know, like Native Americans now, like there's a reason that, you know, aside from like their quality of life, like why they have such high rates of like alcoholism or depression and anxiety because there's so much generational trauma actually passed down and the same with like african-american does that also count as historical trauma when you look at things like um the long-term impacts of slavery of colonization also yep that's exactly it yeah that's why when you were asking if what i see in women of color that's exactly what i see that we're struggling still with the effects of colonization and of everything that happened especially in countries like australia where it's so recent what has Mm -hmm. happened with aboriginal people but even if it's, you know, happened a century ago, we're still dealing with the effects of that. And yeah, that yeah. is why we're seeing, you know, higher rates of alcoholism, domestic violence, suicide, and Native American communities and Black communities. Um, you know, I just saw a study that uh, Latinas are, you know, uh, they're the most likely to have depression at this moment out of all the minority groups in the U.S. And I was like, okay, well, that's like exactly yeah. it as well. Do they, what's I, the specific reason for that? Do you know? The study that I was looking at didn't didn't say why. And I think that this is also the problem that, you know, when we start looking into this kind of research, there's not that much on it. And that's the other reason that I that I wanted to specialize in working with, you know, daughters of immigrants, because Mm -hmm. if there's anyone kind of specializing in this area, usually they work with immigrants. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's amazing. Uh, You know, our immigrant parents definitely deserve that mental health support because, again, immigration is traumatic. But at the same time, the studies now are showing that it's the children of immigrants who have higher rates of anxiety and depression. So Mm -hmm. that's where actually we need more mental health support is actually for the adult children. Um, And even the children, if we can start giving support to the kids right now as they're growing up, then that's even better. But unfortunately, you know, again, because of the stigma in our families, it might not be until now that we're adults that we're actually, you know, listening to podcasts like this mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and trying to do what we can to prioritize our mental health and yeah. go from 
our traumas to be those cycle breakers. It's a little bit bittersweet that it takes us approximately maybe an average of 20 years to reach this point where we can unlearn and heal. But then like, I guess that's better than like, you know, the older generations who, you know, died and never got that opportunity or our parents who are now healing and unlearning at the age of 50, right? So I guess like with each generation, we'll get to unlearn and heal and maybe we won't even have to unlearn at that point because it would have been integrated into our childhoods better, at least I hope in the coming generations. You know, there's still stigma against mental health when it comes to, and I, I don't know if this is poor way of wording it, but like with how straightforward depression and anxiety seems in today's current climate. And then to explain historical and generation generational trauma, I feel like some people will be like, oh, like you're making that up. Like that doesn't exist, especially like, you know, for like white people, right? Like, do you see it's harder to convince people of something like historical trauma? Do they just like brush it off being like, oh, you're like crazy. You're making it up. It doesn't exist. And like, do people of color themselves find it hard to digest that it is something very real? I usually don't see it too much with people of color. Okay. Although I actually did have an Indian friend who, when I mentioned, you know, that I was, I was needing a mental health day because I had just experienced some casual racism that had really impacted me and I needed to take the day off. And she said, oh, I've lived here, you know, like seven years in Australia. I've never experienced racism. And I, you know, didn't really know what to say, but I just, okay, mm-hmm. well, anyway, I'm sorry. I can't have a call today, but I'm, I'm taking a mental health day. Um, yeah. And then a few weeks later, I think because of that conversation, she was actually able to notice, you know, that Such she had experienced yeah and so you know I think sometimes people of color are you know we're in denial and I think Mm -hmm. sometimes ignorance is bliss and so that denial is you know our mind's way of protecting us and so that's why you know I wasn't going to be the one to tell her you know that racism does exist in Australia and she probably has experienced it and just hasn't realized it um she was able to come to that conclusion and realize it even just a few weeks later on her own but yeah for the most part I think the people of color that I've interacted with, I think, yeah, you can kind of tell that, like you said, it, it is a, the simplest way of thinking about it is when our, when we think about the beliefs that our parents have, and how that was passed down from their parents, mm-hmm. and ancestors passed. And so then they might think, oh, okay, well, that's exactly why, you know, my mom was hurt this way. And so now I struggle, you know, with trust issues because she was hurt in this way for example Mm -hmm. so sometimes it is pretty simple to believe in that generational trauma historical trauma I think because we're not taught these history lessons you know when we're growing up if we're as adults not really doing the research and learning about the effects of colonization then it might also be you know I, I have met some people that think like well you just have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you know we can do the same thing that white people can and you know and I think that that's all great except that it's you know, unfortunately, it's not true. And the statistics are there. And they show us Mm -hmm. that no matter how hard we work, we are going to unfortunately experience a lot of barriers that our white counterparts are not going to be facing. And so I think it is important to be realistic. But with white people convincing them the effects of historical trauma, 
it's, it is a bit harder. And I think that they don't really think about it. They're very quick to judge, you know, Mm -hmm. when Native American or Aboriginal people are drinking, for example, and they just say, oh, well, they're lazy, and they're drunks, and they don't stop to think about, you know, who was it that actually introduced alcohol? Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, not here to point fingers, but also, can we stop and think, why are they drinking alcohol? It's mm-hmm. because of, of the horrible trauma that they've experienced. Um, so now whenever I encounter someone, you know, making racist remarks about Aboriginal or Native American people, and especially about how much they drink, I try to give them that educational piece and, you know, inform them about the historical trauma that's there and let them know, mm-hmm. okay, this is actually why they might be, you know, coping by drinking, or, you know, they might have these, you know, violent behaviors, it's because they've been very traumatized as a people. And it's actually mm-hmm. happened very recently, at least in Australia. And mm-hmm. so we are mm-hmm. dealing with the effects of that colonization. And so, yeah, we have to be more mindful of that. And I think that if all of us went around just really educating, then we might be a little bit further along. But I think it is really scary to have that conversation, yeah. for sure, especially when Definitely. you're the only brown person in the room. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Doing what, what you can, <laughs> when when you can, um, yeah. is, is a great start. But yeah. yeah, also don't feel don't feel that you always have to because, you know, racial burnout is also a thing. And yeah. so we yeah. have to fight the good fight when our cup is, is full enough, when yeah. it's safe enough to do so. And there's a lot of things to consider when, yeah. you know, we decide to speak up. When I lived in America for like, I mentioned it was during the election time. It was the first time I was away from home. So I could also like explore my political freedom and like build my own opinions as a young independent woman. And, you know, Philly's quite a liberal place. It's culturally diverse. So it was like, I didn't just like put my foot in. I was like thrown in the deep end and it was a great, great time. Like I had such amazing conversations with everyone around me, but it was at that point of time where every conversation was always about like something heavy, whether it was like, you know, the shootings that would happen every evening on like Broad Street where we lived or, you know, like Philly has high rates of trans women being killed and murdered and the police department don't do anything about it to like, you know, white supremacy and all of these conversations were nonstop that it got to a point where my mental health was already bad, but it was like pushing me over the edge. And then I moved to Dubai and And it sounds so selfish, but like for a good six to seven months while I was in Dubai, I just did not want to look at American news. And it wasn't that I didn't care anymore. You know, like to do what's good for you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a huge and it's it's uh, I don't know if it sounds bad to say, but it was really a relief off my shoulders to be out of that like that zone. And I care about those issues as much as I did back then. But it's like, I just needed some breathing space because it does become too much. And when your entire world and all your conversations are revolving around it, it does take a toll on you. It definitely does. Yeah. And so we have to look at how we're consuming content, how often Mm -hmm. we're consuming content, who we surround ourselves with, making sure that we have a good support system, you know, people who do understand our points of view, especially when we're, you know, often having these conversations with, you know, people who have very different and very opposing points of view. But yeah, I would just say, like, don't feel guilty, don't feel selfish if you're doing what's best for your mental health. I think that we can still be very involved and very passionate and, um, still be, you know, educated about everything that's happening, even if we're not watching the news every single day, every single moment, every single waking hour, 
I know that when the pandemic hit with everything that was happening in the U.S., I definitely I took a break and I just said mm-hmm. I need to do this for my mental health. One of the last questions I have for you is with your experience as a trauma um, informed therapist, what can one expect from you? I think for me, what you can expect is just someone who is going to be non-judgmental and who's going to be, you know, just always learning and willing to ask questions when I don't know something. Um, but I'm not going to expect you to teach me about your culture or, or anything like that. If you want to tell me about something that I might not know about, then that's okay. But, you know, I'm also always learning. And yeah, especially when I have a client from a different cultural background, I will, you know, try to learn and do my own research because that's what we're encouraging, you know, our white counterparts to be doing always, right? Is that they shouldn't have that expectation for us to teach them. And it's the same thing, you know, when I'm helping another person of color who's from a different cultural background. So I think there's there's this term, you know, culturally competent. And I stay away from using that word because it's not possible to be culturally competent in every in every culture but culturally sensitive you know even that one I'm like oh, I don't know but yeah I do try to be I guess more sensitive to different cultures mm-hmm. and acknowledge mm-hmm. you know that yes we might have there might be a lot of similarities between our cultures but I'm also not going to assume and I'm not going to assume that because you're from this culture you've grown up in this certain way like I'm going to let you tell me your story and when we go from there And I also, you know, the approach that I use, like I said, it is uh, often somatic. And so I know that, you know, especially when we're dealing with things like historical trauma and generational trauma, there are often things that we might not know that we're holding Mm -hmm. on to. And so we might not have a great relationship with our parents or with our grandparents, or they might, there might be gaps in what those traumas actually were. And especially, you know, when we look at historical trauma, so much of our history hasn't been documented. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of it has been erased on purpose. And so we might not know and we might not ever have a way of knowing. And I know for a lot of people that that can be really challenging, especially Mm -hmm. because they, you know, want to connect with that part of their identity. And so for me, like this kind of somatic work is really important because, yes, I can tell that we're holding on to a lot of trauma in our bodies, but we don't have a way of expressing it verbally because we don't actually know. So it's similar to if something happened to you, something traumatic happened to you as a child and you might not remember what it is because it was so long ago mm-hmm. or even if it's something recent you know our minds have this way of protecting us from what it is that happened to us and so it might block it out and we might dissociate and so that's why this somatic approach kind of comes into that because then you don't have to speak we don't use the prefrontal cortex where you and I are speaking and verbalizing our thoughts with somatic approaches, we're actually looking at what's happening in the body. And so I use an approach called brain spotting, which Mm -hmm. helps us access the subcortical part of the brain and helps us really get in touch with a different part of the brain where the trauma is actually stored. Wow. Yeah, you're healing even if you can't verbalize it. So oftentimes with brain spotting, I won't really do a lot of talking. I'll guide Mm -hmm. a little bit But actually, the more talking that I do, it'll bring you back to your prefrontal cortex, because then you have to think about how to answer my question. So yeah, it's a very different kind of approach. It's a mindfulness, like body mind approach that really lets you kind of connect to where that trauma is stored in your body. 
And, I'm going to research yeah. this after that. That sounds yeah, so cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've seen it help so many people and yeah, especially like great. with the generational trauma, you know, yeah. some of my clients say, okay, I can actually like connect with, you know, my grandmother and I can see her running away from her abuser. And, you know, it's just, it's so powerful, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. things that we might not even be, you know, aware of, but our mm-hmm. body is it's holding on to it's that. It's so deep inside. Memories, sometimes it's feelings. Sometimes it's just, you feel something really in your body. Uh-huh. And so, yeah, it's super interesting. So yeah, it's a, it's been a, around for a few years, but okay. it's just now becoming more popular. It's becoming something that therapists are being trained in kind of worldwide. So but yeah, it's amazing. And you can do this kind of as, as a group as well, which mm-hmm. I really love because I see this, that we can actually use this to decolonize therapy, you know, because traditionally therapy has been kind of like a one-on-one approach, mm-hmm. but now with brain spotting, I could see, you know, now brain spotting has been offered, you know, even at conferences, you know, to big groups of people. It would be and really, so, sorry, I was just going to say, I was going to be like, it would be so cool if they did brain spotting with like a family to heal their generational trauma yeah, together. Exactly. Like you have the exactly. grandmother with and your families. mom and you. Yes, exactly. Oh my exactly. God. Oh, it's so powerful with families, but even, you know, you do it like in classrooms, mm-hmm. you know, with parents, you know, I'm just thinking like, you know, a room full of all of our immigrant parents, you know, and helping them heal, connect with their, with their inner child mm-hmm. or whatever it is that they, they, need but yeah so it's something that I love especially when you can't verbalize I sometimes we just need to talk because we have no one in our lives that really gets it especially in a predominantly white society we might only have our therapist you know Mm -hmm. to talk to about these Mm -hmm. things who really gets it and so I have a lot of clients who come and they just need a vent because they have no one else in their life that they can talk to about these things so sometimes it's just we talk about everything that's happening other times you know, we try the brain spotting and see how deep we can go, how far back we can go. We work on healing that trauma. And yeah, I'll just mention like in the workshop that I'm hosting tomorrow, we're going to do a brain spotting experiential as well. Yeah. Ooh, I'm yeah. going to definitely, I'm going to post this on my story. Send me the details. This episode's yeah. only coming out in like, I think two weeks. So before then, right now, guys, I'm going to go on my story, share the details so you can hop on. Um, That's super cool. Yeah. Yes. But like I said, the workshop will be recorded. So you can definitely join after the fact. And I highly recommend it. If you are thinking about, you know, starting your healing journey, just be really patient and kind with yourself. You know, with me, like, because I'm the first person in my family to go to therapy, I know that it can be really hard to find a therapist that's a good fit. It can be really scary to reach out and make that first appointment. Mm -hmm. And even after you make that first appointment, you know, you might struggle with coming back because the first session maybe was a lot. It brought up a lot of things for you. So just be really patient with yourself. Even if you have to like stop and come back, like just make sure that you find a therapist that's a really good fit for you. But I definitely think that it's worth it, even if it's really hard in the beginning. Just remember, you're not just doing this for yourself. You're a cycle breaker. You're going to be doing this for future generations. Even if you don't want to have kids, you know, there's people looking up to you, especially, you know, when we have big families. Thank you so much, Nancy, for hopping on. I'm going to be adding Nancy's Instagram details so you can reach out to her. I will also figure out adding the link to the recording of the workshop. And then I will also add different directories for 
POC, so whether it's South Asian, Latinx, or African American, yeah. the different ones, I'm going to try gather that up. So make sure you check the episode send you description. The list of all of those. Yes, yeah, yes. awesome. That's so important. Yeah, I yeah. have a document with all those resources Ooh. because I know that it can be so hard to find a therapist that's a person <laughs> of color in your country, in your state. It's just, it's a real pain. So, yeah. yes, I'm so. definitely person to go to for those referrals awesome. so. so you heard it fresh off the mic nancy's gonna give me the important goods and i'll be sharing it with you guys so definitely check out the episode description make sure to follow nancy show her some love you know the drill like follow subscribe check out instagram for more behind the scenes content and insight